0: Welcome to Warning Bells. Our last episode focused upon the disturbing amount of incidents involving 737 MAX airplanes since they were recertified to fly again. That episode also touched upon the difficulty in gaining flight safety data. I picked this next gentleman to be our guest today for two primary reasons. First, because his organization is challenging the Federal Aviation Administration's refusal to share the data associated with the recertification of the 737 MAX. And second, because of his noteworthy track record in looking out for the rights of airline passengers. You may recall that when the airplanes were grounded after the second crash in March 2019, the MAX airplane was required to be recertified by the FAA before it was allowed to fly again. Boeing and the FAA went through a 20-month recertification process that FAA Administrator Steve Dixon described as comprehensive and grueling. Of course, given that, we would expect that such a comprehensive and grueling process would result in completely safe airplanes. But as we discussed in our last episode with Joe Jacobson, that is not necessarily the case. Joining me today is Paul Hudson. Paul's been a groundbreaking public safety advocate for over 30 years. In the 1970s, he worked with the energy and the utility industry as an attorney for the New York Public Interest Research Group. And then, in the 1980s, he was a pioneering national advocate for crime victim rights and chief attorney for the New York State Crime Victims Board. In the 1990s and 2000s, he was a leading advocate for aviation security and terrorist victim rights as the head of the Terrorist Victims Group, as well as executive director of the Aviation Consumer Action Project, founded by Ralph Nader in 1971 as a national advocate for air travelers. Paul is a longtime member of the FAA's Aviation Rulemaking Advisory Committee. Paul is currently the president of Flyers Rights, which is the largest and most respected nonprofit airline passenger organization in the world. I'd like to welcome Paul Hudson. Welcome to the podcast, Paul.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Yet, I could read your biography, but then it would take so long we'd never get done.
0: <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I look at that and I think um, I'm, a, I'm really old. But I, I did want to say that one of the things I, I notice in, in researching Flyers Rights is you guys have really expanded into a lot of very important critical areas. And one of those areas is accident investigations and, and questioning things that have happened. And did we properly investigate accidents, I wanted to talk to you about the 737 MAX and your organization's efforts to get the FAA to share this information with the public about the recertification and the Freedom of Information Act request that they've had to resort to a lawsuit to try to get this information. So I wanted to talk about the lawsuit that Flyers Rights filed. And this is actually how I got first introduced to you and I'm going to just tell you what my my side was, but I'm really interested in hearing your perspective as the leader of the organization. But I heard that after the MAX crashes, you know, FAA was going through a, a very detailed, comprehensive recertification effort to look at what changes needed to be made to make the plane safe again. And I know that your organization very early on started asking for information about the recertification so that we could make sure that the recertification data could be out and shared with different individuals outside of Boeing and the FAA that might be able to, you know, review this. And I know you had a team of experts who were former flight test pilots and a whole impressive group of people that were saying, you know, we, we know that Boeing and the FAA made some serious mistakes in the development of the MAX. We don't want that to happen again in the recertification. And, and quite honestly, we don't, we don't trust you right now. So we want, we want more information so we can judge for ourselves that we feel like the plane is, is safe again. And so could you tell us a little bit about what happened and why you decided to file a lawsuit to get this information?
1: Well, we decided to file a a freedom of information request at the end of 2019, but there was quite a bit of our involvement prior to that. I was actually called by one of our member supporters who was a business person, had a lot of business in Indonesia, was quite frequent flyer over there on Lion Air. And uh, he wasn't on the plane, obviously, that went down in October of twenty eighteen, but he could have been. As a member of the FAA's Aviation Rulemaking Advisory Committee, which meets every quarter, is supposed to be the outside forum for stakeholders on on safety regulations. I called my Boeing contact, who was a member of that committee, and I said, why, you know, I I didn't call him actually. I called him, but I also sent him an email saying, "Why, why haven't you grounded the plane? And the response was, well, it's under investigation. We can't talk about it. And then later, a little later in December, I found out they said they were going to have a fix for this problem in January of 2019. And, of course, that did not happen. Then in March, the second crash occurred Mm -hmm. and involved some people that I I knew pretty well. Ralph Nader's uh, grandniece was on that plane. Mm -hmm. We, We immediately called for a grounding again and the FAA again and Boeing didn't want to ground the plane and finally China and some other countries grounded the plane and then president Trump and the FAA said okay we're we're going to ground it too now after that there were some proposed fixes for this flight control system called MCAS but they really weren't sufficient there was some issue that pilots should be retrained but they only wanted to use a little iPad. They didn't want to actually have them go through simulator training, which was clearly necessary. And there was a lot of back and forth from March going forward. Finally, in December, we were asking for information that what Boeing and the FAA were going to do to fix this problem. In the meantime, there had been a lot of congressional hearings. And both the the CEO of Boeing and the FAA administrator swore up and down, under oath, sometimes, yep. it was going to be total transparency.
0: Total transparency,
1: yep. I remember Steve Dixon, the FAA administrator, said, you will know whatever I know mm-hmm. before this plane is ungrounded. So then we roll forward 20 months, okay? And our freedom information requests were ignored, which is normal for them. There were like 70 other requesters, uh, media and lots of other folks. They were all ignored or rejected. We were the only group that actually went to court, which you're allowed to do if your, your request under FOIA is denied or ignored in a pretty short time frame. So we filed the case in um, December of 19. It went to the district court. There was a lot of back and forth with our lawyers and our experts. We had By this time, we had about 10 experts in our network uh, that were helping us. They all said basically the same thing. Unless you release the documents that you used to unground the MAX, there's no way that independent experts or pilots or anyone else can tell you whether it is really safe or safe as it can be now. After this back and forth, we found out that there were about 100 documents that were key documents and about 18,000 pages. And they were turned over in tranches month by month in 20. However, virtually everything was redacted. So we got thousands of pages of blacked out, blacked out pages, at least 99%. They'd get a cover letter saying, please see attached. And then the attached is totally blacked out. This not only included everything that Boeing had sent over to the FAA on the fix, It included anything that FAA had sent back to them. It also included, much to our surprise, the flight test protocols and the actual data from the flight test and the results of the flight test. Everything was labeled trade secrets or proprietary information. I met with the top safety official at the FAA at the time. He was the associate administrator. And I said, look, you know, you have to be able to turn this stuff over. I did this actually before we filed the lawsuit, and he was very clear, absolutely not. We've always done it this way, and we're not going to change.
0: You gave an interesting perspective there about requests for information. The FA administrator, Steve Dixon, like you said, and other key officials were very clear that they were going to be transparent. and And I want to read a sentence here from the lawsuit. It says... And, and this is just underscoring what you just said a moment ago, but it says top FAA and Boeing officials promised the public complete transparency with regard to the ungrounding process. But in response to a freedom of information act suit brought by flyers rights to compel public disclosure of the documents actually relied on by the FAA in making any decision to unground the aircraft, the FAA claimed essentially that all of these documents were exempt from disclosure. And you just described it. You got a, pile of documents that were all blacked out, redacted. Now, they're claiming that this is under the confidential commercial information exemption number four for Freedom of Information Act requests. I got to tell you, I find it really disheartening to know that after these preventable tragedies occurred, after all these hearings, those investigations have uncovered disturbing information about the actual initial certification of the plane. And here we have Right after these crashes, the head of the FAA, Administrator Steve Dixon, among others, a senior official saying that they're going to they're gonna do everything they can and they're going to make this completely transparent. And people would hear what happened, what, what, what did they test, what was the data, because quite honestly, they lost the trust of the public. I just really want to see if you could kind of explain what possible logic could the FAA have in not sharing this information about the recertification of the airplane? Well.
1: First of all, this has been a longstanding practice in safety regulation, particularly for certification of new aircraft by the FAA. And secondly, there was a Supreme Court decision in 2019, which made it even easier for not just the FAA, but all federal agencies to keep secret any information or any back and forth documents that they have with regulated parties. It's at the point now where, unless a agency head is really very strong. Anything that is labeled as proprietary or trade secrets or even just confidential will be not released under FOIA. And so we're at the stage now where this so-called exemption for trade secrets and commercial proprietary information has swallowed the rule, has swallowed the statute. The exception is the rule. The rule is the exception. So what happened in our case, and this applies to other agencies as well, is the lower court agreed with FAA. That was in September of, of last year. We've filed an appeal, and the case is now in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. If that doesn't change, you would have to get an amendment to the statute to overturn this unfortunate policy. And it was reinforced by a Supreme Court decision. Otherwise, we're going to see that that FOIA is is largely uh, a dead letter.
0: Paul, you know, as the president of Flyers Rights, I know people that are at airports, everybody hopes that their travel goes smoothly and safely. And your organization has done so much more than just help people when they deal with issues like lost bags and flight cancellations. I mean, you've been actively involved in improving aviation safety for decades. Could you just give us a little bit more background on how Flyers' Rights started? I think people would be interested in hearing this. Sure.
1: My experience in in this field goes before Flyers' Rights, but Flyers' Rights uh, really started in early 2007. Kate was a realtor uh, from California traveling with her family, and she was, this is over uh, a New Year's Day weekend, she was stranded uh, along with about 10,000 others by American Airlines that had their main hub at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport socked in with the storm. And they distributed about 100 flights to all different airports. And instead of doing something about it, they simply had them parked on the tarmac. They wouldn't let them out of the planes. And Kate, with her family, was there for uh, nine or 10 hours.
0: On the tarmac, just stuck on the plane.
1: Stuck on the plane. So it's it's really wrongful imprisonment is, is the legal term. If you're in a store and something goes off with the lights or something like that, they can't hold you in the store for hours and even days until they get the lights back on. They have to let you out. Uh, but the airlines were keeping about a quarter million people a year on the tarmac when they knew that they were not flying or they were not flying anytime soon. And they did it for commercial convenience. Because if they let you out of the plane. You would find perhaps other alternatives, or you would want to ask for meals or uh, hotels, or you would simply cancel your trip. They had a a phrase in the in the industry that was to prevent what they called passenger migration. <laughs> Congress then uh, stepped in, started to have hearings. It started out as a campaign to limit the time that you could be held on the tarmac. It resulted in. 2009 in legislation and rules, now known as the three-hour rule. In domestic flights, you cannot be held on the tarmac more than three hours, international four hours, and you have to get hydration and, and food supplies within two hours. This virtually eliminated this problem. Some people thought, well, that's a nice campaign, it's over, but it turned out there were a lot more problems than just tarmac confinement. And Kate, after working on this for seven years, said, I can't do this anymore. I was on the board, and she said, would you like to take this over? So I did that in starting in 2013, and we've gone forward from there to the point where we're by far the leading airline passenger organization. We both advocate for passengers before all branches of government, and we also provide various services.
0: You know, when I hear you talk about Kate in the beginning, I, I remember many years ago being stuck on the tarmac for just like 30 40 minutes, you know, and I had to go to the bathroom and I remember thinking that there was mothers on there with little kids and I mean the, the idea that this in the past would go on for hours and hours and hours for a whole day was just astonishing. So I you know, that's and it is a it is a public safety issue obviously when you have a couple hundred people in a tight spaces and there's issues with ventilation and and all kinds of things and so i just wanted to thank you for your leadership paul and your and your organization's leadership i know you've also and i definitely want to just mention it because it's it just kind of shows the depth and the and how much you guys are trying to help people but you have been working on minimum seat standards i thought i was just you know getting a little bit bigger in my age but i'm i'm finding every time i get on a plane it's just tighter and tighter and I know that that's really difficult for people, particularly people with disabilities, people with you know, mobility issues, and, and also it becomes a hazard in evacuation. I, I believe the standard is, is it 90 seconds? I believe it was 90 seconds that the plane had to be able to get evacuated if there was a ground emergency. Is, is that correct?
1: Yeah, so seats regulation is another signal issue of flyers' rights. We filed in 2015 what's called a rulemaking petition with the FAA to require that they set minimum seat standards and that they appoint an advisory committee to help them do that. In 2016 that petition was denied. We went to court and in 17 the court said, "Well, you have to take another look at this because you're claiming that emergency evacuation is not affected by the size of seats using secret data and we don't think you should be able to use secret data." So they remanded the case in 17. In 18, the FAA, unsurprisingly, came back again and said we're denying it again. Uh, we did get a few videos of emergency evacuation from some plane makers, and we went back to court. In the meantime, Congress had taken action, and they required by October of 19 that, that the FAA must issue minimum seat standards for the width of the seat, for pitch, which is legroom, and for the length of the seat. They failed to do that. Finally, in January. Of this year, we went back to court again, filed what's called a mandamus petition to force court to have them comply with the law. They're resisting that. We'll see what happens. But they are basically saying that even though the statute by almost anyone's reading is mandatory, they view it as optional. Mm -hmm. So their position is that if they feel that Seat size doesn't matter for emergency evacuation. They don't have to do anything.
0: And they being the FAA.
1: The FAA. And in addition to emergency evacuation, there's, there's three other factors that are important in seat safety. There's something called the brace position, which is when you have a plane crash, the, the secondary impact is what kills people. And the brace position involves you putting your head on the, the seat in front of you with your hands over your head and some other things. To reduce that risk. When the seats are as confined as they are, the brace position is impossible to do.
0: I know we talked about a lot of different topics today, Paul, but I was wondering if you'd be willing to share with our audience your subsequent involvement in the horrible tragedy known as the Pan Am Flight 103 Lockerbie bombing.
1: Well, going back to um, the uh, Pan Am 103 terrorist bombing, which was in December of 1988, I would have been involved with crime victim rights, but I never had any personal association with air travel or or crime for that matter. My daughter was on the plane returning from being an exchange student, a high school exchange student from England. And she, with 270 others, were blown out of the sky. Eleven people on the ground were killed. And it was a terrible tragedy, and it just destroyed in some ways our life. Before something like this happens, you have one life and after you have another life. It's still life, but it's very different. I had assumed that the terrorists just found some clever way of getting around what was otherwise uh, a safe and secure system. But we found out that, no, that really wasn't the case. That ended up With a group of families getting together, both in the U.S. and England, I headed one of the groups, and we ended up getting a presidential commission appointed to do an independent investigation. And with that, afterwards, legislation enacted, the Aviation Security Improvement and Anti-Terrorism Act of 1990. You would think that that solved things. And there was also sanctions against the perpetrator, which was Libya in that case both UN and US sanctions that we were very much involved in in uh, advocating for. But one of the things I've learned over and over, unfortunately, is that not only can't you assume that things are safe, even if you get some legislation or rules passed, you cannot assume that they're actually going to be enforced, just like you can't assume that the companies involved, be it airlines or airplane makers, are going to be doing everything they should. So it really requires uh Group like Flyer's Rights to be the watchdog and, and when things are, are not in place to advocate in a way that they are
0: they are made as right as they can be. Paul, I can tell this is a very painful story for you. Thank you for sharing it with our audience. Any final thoughts on what you think, you know, regarding this, you know, seven thirty seven Max in particular or just in, in general flyers' rights. Anything you'd like to add?
1: Well, you know, this problem is is easily fixed. Okay. But it requires some policymakers at Boeing and the FAA to fix it. Boeing could easily say to the FAA, we're waiving at least most of the objections that we had to the FOIA request, and FAA would have no choice but to release the information. We even have asked for a compromise position, which they apparently toyed with but then rejected, which was have a release of the information to our experts And to the court, and they could only be released publicly if there was an additional court order, but they rejected that too. The head of the FAA is now an incoming person. He will be confirmed in the next month or so. He could easily change the policy. As you mentioned before, Secretary Buttigieg could change the policy. President Biden could change the policy. Congress has tried, but they're really not very effective. So it's unlikely they will be able to do it. The Supreme Court, well, they could change their prior decisions. But without any of these things happening, I think we're really setting ourselves up for more crashes, whether it's from this plane or another one. And we're running the risk of the U.S. losing its leadership in commercial aviation. The FAA has already lost, not just its leadership, but the trust that other nations have. And if we have another crash with more things like this, we could see the whole aviation industry migrate to China and to the Europeans.
0: Well, I'll tell you, Paul, I just know that we're a better country than this. Boeing is a better manufacturer. I want to share a quick story with you. When Bill Boeing walked into the first factory, he walked up and he saw parts that were um, cut out incorrectly. They weren't really bad, but they were off just a little bit. And he proceeded to stomp on them and break them into pieces because he said, this is not how we build airplanes. We build them to the level of precision that we designed, and we're not going to take anything less. Paul, your organization is doing a lot of great work, and we applaud you. If you want to support Flyers' Rights, you can go online. They've got a really good website. You can sign petitions. You could be informed of some of these legislation and policy efforts that this group is working on. So I thank you again, Paul, for your time today.
1: Thank you.